Greetings, traveler. Take a seat. Strap yourself in. Pre-order any of the various microgravity snacks and cocktails on our in-flight menu. As we leave Earth's atmosphere, we will engage the Lokonaut engine, which will allow us to cross the boundaries between our world and other worlds that could have been. Instead of visiting the actual planets of our solar system, we will visit the various hypothetical solar system objects that all seemed possible at one point. Counting down. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back to explore some of the furthest reaches of space, about as far as you can go into space, the part of space that never existed in the first place. <laughs> or is, uh, or in some cases, uh, as we'll get into in, a, in an upcoming episode, things that have not been completely substantiated in the dark outer regions of our solar system. Right. So today, Robert and I wanted to explore hypothetical solar system objects, objects believed to be out there in our local galactic neighborhood within the domain of influence of our home star, the sun. Right. Uh, and there have been tons of objects like this over the years that have been proposed to be out there, some that we now know aren't actually there or were never there, others that uh, maybe there's still an open question. Right. And, uh, you know, especially in the first one we're going to discuss, you have something that is – it emerges as a, a model for the solar system or a model for – the, the universe beyond Earth, based on on a mix of the best available information at the time, and then also perhaps some some other concepts uh, that maybe didn't need to necessarily influence a scientific or pre, even pre-scientific understanding of what the universe might consist of. Well, one of the things that this episode will end, uh, will cause us to have to consider is what are the ideas that people bring to the table when they're, when they're trying to decide what exists out there in the void of space? And it's not always as simple as just, well, we look up in the sky or we look through a telescope and we see what we see. And if we see something, then, then we think it's there. A lot of times there are reasons people have for concluding that objects must be up there in the solar system. And what those reasons are are about as interesting as the the models themselves. Right, because it, you end up going from, say, just pure um, observational data to a working understanding of uh, the physical world to mathematical models that are based on all of these things. And you kind of expand outward from there. Uh, and uh, along the way, there's, there's room for uh, – you know, expectations to build around things that end up to be uh, illusory. And so our first illusory uh, destination is going to be the planet Antikathon. Antikathon. So this includes, I would say, a sort of a, a Katha, a, a little bit of a hint of Cthulhu mythos Yeah, it, it does. It's a there, great name. There's a cosmic horror to behold. Uh, it's, it stands for, of course, the opposite Earth, the counter-Earth. Yes. Uh, so please keep all seatbelts fastened as our as we approach this hypothetical planet, and because we're gonna we're gonna be coming into into a close proximity to some some very old, very alien cosmic forces here, uh, namely a cosmos or a model for the cosmos in which everything, including our sun, gravitates around the great central fire. The great central fire is not the sun. Right. This is something else. This is Dios Philike, the watchtower of Zeus, the prison of Zeus, the hearth altar of the universe, uh, all these things depending on your translation. Well, I am on board for this journey. Robert, tell me, where does the idea of the Antikathon come from? Well, the Antikathon was first proposed by Greek philosopher Philolas, who lived um, from 470 to 385 BCE. He worked with a Pythagorean cosmological system. Okay. In his system, you had a sphere of fixed stars, and you had the five planets. You had the sun. You had the moon. But you didn't only have Earth. You had a counter-Earth. A counter-Earth. Right. And all of this is moving around the central fire, which, again, is not the sun. And the planet Antikathon 
uh, in this model remains unseen to us. It's always hidden. Um, you know, it's it's either b- below the horizon or or hidden uh, by by uh, by some other factor of uh, the movements of this uh, this model. Okay, so I'm trying to picture this. If the sun is not the central fire, but it's always uh, but Antikathon, the counter Earth, is always on the opposite side of the central fire. I guess I'm having trouble picturing it, but maybe you can lay it out for me. Yeah, in a yeah we'll lay it lay it out more. But basically, some of these things like the central fire and uh, Antikathon, they would be eternally in our blind spot in okay. this model. Okay. So the model here explains the movement of observable and, uh, you know, and unobservable bodies as being dictated by their distance from the central fire. Uh, so that the distant spheres of fixed stars, well, that, that barely moves at all. Mm-hmm. The moon takes a month to complete its revolution, the sun a year, and each planet in its own interval. The earth is closest to the central fire, and so it takes only 24 hours. And all of this accounts for the apparent movement of the spheres in our cycles of night and day. So a large part of the model is attempting to explain why things are moving the way they appear to be moving. Mm-hmm. And this was something that was worth trying to explain because even back in the ancient world, in the 4th or 5th century BCE, we didn't have telescopes yet. But there was plenty of naked eye astronomy. I mean, the the, the inner planets were known about back then by the Babylonian astronomers. There, there's a lot you could learn and study just by looking up at the sky at night with the naked eye. But the big question is, uh, I mean, obviously, there are things – that are part of the solar system that that these uh, uh, early astronomers could not see and had no idea existed. And yet at the same time, why would a model like this need to, by necessity, incorporate things that are invisible? Right, yeah. Why would you invent an antikathon if you don't have direct evidence that it's there? Well, um, Aristotle would later, and this depends on who you're reading. In some cases, people interpret this as a joke. Okay. Uh, would perhaps joke about uh, this theory and say that uh, that the uh, Pythagoreans and uh, in particular uh, Philolaus uh, made up the hidden 10th solar body in order to reach a perfect number of 10. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, because they were really into like numbers and symmetry and all that. Right. And, and a lot of what we understand about this theory does come from uh, from the writings of Aristotle and uh, – or at least what we can decipher of his writings about it. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, whether he was wh- – whether this was – he was truly joking about this 10-planet um, uh, thing, uh, I'm not sure. But uh, we, we still have to give Philolaus a, a, a great deal of credit because no matter what he got wrong here in an attempt to understand the movement of the cosmos, he at least used a system that didn't position the earth – or even the sun at the center of everything. Uh-huh. So he was ahead of the the geocentrics and the heliocentrics in that regard. Uh, he was also the first to create a model that that actually uh, lists all five planets known to antiquity in the correct order. And in many respects, he simply built the best model possible based on existing theories, current current data, and observations. Again. With the, with the caveat here that he also threw in two non-existent bodies. So first let's talk about the whole center of this whole thing, um, the, the central fire and, and why, why it's there instead of the earth or the sun, uh, which is further out from the center in this model. Like earth is closest to the central fire and sun is beyond, the sun is beyond that. But the central fire is always on the opposite side of the earth. We can't see right, it. Right. We never get to see it. So it's possible uh, that it was because fire rather than earth seemed a more fitting elemental center to things. Hmm. And the sun in this model is apparently actually interpreted more as like a glass that reflects the inner fire to our world. Hmm. And then there's a, a there's a great deal of disagreement about all the details in this model and and interpretations vary. Uh, but some think that the counter Earth is there to balance out our Earth in some way, or that it's there to account for eclipses. Oh, which is an interesting theory that that uh, that Aristotle backs up to some degree, and it does remind me of similar contemplations in uh, in Indian astronomy that led to the creation of the eclipse demon Rahu, uh, which is also an, an astronomical body. Uh, it was, you know, determined this is a thing that is uh, causing eclipses. So Rahu would be the demon that would come out and eat the sun. Well, yes, in the in the purely, and we've discussed this on an, on an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But but yeah, Rahu was at once this demon that would come out and, and eat the sun, but also uh, an astronomical calculation as part of the model for how uh, eclipses were occurring. Mm. And as uh, one of the curious uh, facts of all this is that as uh, 
Indian astronomy advanced and, uh, and created a more uh, accurate view of what was going on with eclipses, instead of like keeping the uh, the religion, the mythology untouched, they also adjusted that to make up for these new advancements in science. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So go back and listen to that episode. I'll, tr I'll make sure to link to it on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. So uh, Philolaus explains that the Earth rotates so that it always faces away from the central fire, so we never see it. We're tidally locked, I guess. They wouldn't have those terms back then, right. I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's an interesting idea that lots of uh, – objects that orbit other objects are not rotating freely as they orbit like we are. They're tidally locked, meaning their rotation is synchronized to their orbit. So the same side of the, the body always faces the inner object. Now, of course, there would be a, a number, knowing what we know now, there would be so many problems with this model, right? If one side of the Earth were just perpetually, I guess, in flames due to facing uh, this this weird cosmic non-sun fire at the center of things. That would be very bad, Yeah. yeah. But again, in this model, the planet's locked. It's never, it, never, it never sees that we never see the fire from our side of the planet. And likewise, we never see the counter-Earth, which moves at the same speed as our planet. So I wonder, did he think that there were people on the other side of the planet who could see the central fire? I don't believe so. I mean, we have to we, – again, we're, we're thinking with, with our sort of modern model of, of, of what we know to be true mm -hmm. about the, the world and the solar system. And uh, we have to, to realize that this system was, was partially constructed on just uh, the, the best materials they had at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also been suggested that the notion of a counter-Earth was introduced in this model, you know, not for any physical reasons, not for any kind of counterbalancing uh, reasons, et cetera, but for the same reason that we find the concept fascinating today, that the, you know, the notion of another Earth is – mysterious and intriguing. It, you know, it, it's a mirror realm just beyond our reach. Yeah. In particular, ancient philosophy scholar Peter Kingsley has proposed that aspects of the model attempt to factor in Hades and Tartarus. Um, Hades and Tartarus, of course, um, uh, you know, are, are locations, uh, realms, Within uh, Greek mythology. The realms of the dead, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, so Hades is like the sort of general realm of the dead and Tartarus is more like a hell. Yeah, like if you were one of the titans who rebelled against the gods, uh, then that is your likely abode. Uh-huh. So uh, Kingsley's argument is that both of these uh, realms are considered to be below the earth, uh, uh, Tartarus furthest of all. And that would make the counter-earth Hades and the central fire Tartarus. Uh, and this is where we get, come back to, the, the, to Kingsley's interpretation of it as not being the, the, the tower of Zeus, but the prison of Zeus, the prison of the titans. And uh, this, is, so this interpretation, to be clear, is sometimes described as provocative, so this is not necessarily like the uh, uh, the agreed upon explanation for the system, but uh, it's an interesting take, take, and it does attempt to understand the motivation for skewing the model so and introducing uh, two invisible realms into a model of celestial mechanics. But it would mean that the counter Earth here is the realm of the dead, a planet of the underworld. Wow. Now, uh, Philolaus's model of the heavens certainly doesn't hold up to later, much less modern astronomy. But you're probably wondering, what if there was another Earth? Maybe he's onto something here, right? What if there, there was another Earth orbiting at the, just the right speed so that the sun is always between us and our evil twin? What if, what if it was always in our blind spot? W could that work? Would we have seen it by now if there was such a planet? Huh, that's a good question. Yeah, if it was on the opposite side of the sun, we wouldn't really be able to see it normally, would we? Well, on surface level, this sounds possible, and I can I can easily you can easily see where this spirals into conspiracy theory thinking, right? Right. Well, I mean, try to find this object with your telescope, and you will suffer a, a problem with the eyes. Right. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing: it wouldn't work because yes we would have spotted it. Oh, okay. Because here's the thing. The movement of the planets around the sun are not quite this simple clockwork model that we sometimes fix in our heads. Mm -hmm. It's not just planets going around the sun at, at, at constant speeds. No, the gravity of other planets has a subtle influence on our orbit. Absolutely. Slowing us down or speeding us up. So if there was another Earth on the other side of the sun, it would, uh, it would get a Jupiter pull or boost and it would inevitably give us a peek at the hidden planet behind the sun. So it wouldn't be able to remain perfectly hidden 
forever. Mm-hmm. It would either one of one of the one of our Earths would uh, would outpace the other just enough to get a peek of it, and it would be revealed. But it wouldn't just be the influence of say Jupiter and the other planets on it. It would also be the influence of it on the other planets we can see. Right. Yeah. Uh, given the effect. Uh, that the mass of one planet has on the orbits of other planets, we'd see it in the math. If there was a hidden body of planetary mass on the other side of the sun, we would we would see it. It would have disrupted the orbits of our satellites. And this would hold true, according to NASA scientist Michael Kaiser, even if the counter-Earth were only 100 miles wide. So it doesn't even have to be a full-sized counter-Earth. Uh, if, even if it were just relatively small, we would be able to experience the effects, detect the effects of its presence. Uh, but let's say you're one of those people who's like, ah, I don't trust all that math and detection stuff. I, I, I won't believe until I can look for it and see it and it's not there. Well, I mean, I'm, if, if, if that's who you are, I probably can't convince you. <laughs> anyway. uh-huh. But in 2006, NASA's Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory, or STEREO, mm-hmm. uh, mission sent two satellites around the sun to study the solar surface. And they allowed us a peek beyond the sun. And guess what? There's no planet Hades there. Uh, so we have looked. We have looked in the in the closet for the monster and Antikathon is nowhere to be found. Right. Yeah, we've looked in all three ways that it would be revealed to us. Yes. And it is not it is not there. It's it's not even I can't I can't stress it enough. It's not just a matter of, well, we haven't seen it yet. No, it's it is not there. Definitely not. Right. However, if you do want to find a counter-Earth, your best place to experience it is in science fiction. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Though I bet there are some wonderful counter-Earth conspiracy theories out there. Oh, I'm sure there are. Uh, But I can't imagine they're as delightful or – well, I don't know if all these are delightful. Uh, Let's say I'm not sure they could possibly be as interesting as some of the counter-Earth models that we've seen in science fiction, though. Now, isn't gore a counter-Earth? Yes, it is. <laughs> John Norman's Gore. Uh, the, these are a series, a long series of sci-fi f- fantasy novels in which the counter-earth gore is a world of swords, techno-priest kings, sexual philosophy, and the solar system's strategic reserves of misogyny. Oh, that sounds about <laughs> right because I, I have not read any of these books, but I have seen the film, the MST3K treatment of Outlaw of Gore. Yes. Or, or right. just Outlaw. Outlaw of Gore, I think, yeah, uh, that's the title you usually see. 1988 uh-huh. uh, with Jack Palance. Jack Palance, yeah. that's right, yeah, with uh, the guy who keeps yelling the other character's name about 500 times in the movie. Cabot. Cabot. Yeah. yeah. And this was a sequel to 1987's Gore, which also had Palance in it, uh, as well as Oliver Reed. I have not yet seen that film. Oliver Reed. Yeah, it looks wow. fabulous. I'm waiting for for one of the riffing services, Riff Tracks or Mystery Science Theater, to to finally riff this film for me. Yeah, I just remember about this movie. It's it's very it's like obvious, like super sexist, just woman hating off the chain and like really silly fight scenes. Yeah, well, my understanding of the book series, and and I haven't and I haven't read them. Perhaps we can hear from some listeners who have and have some some feedback on them. Um, apparently, they start out in the, the again thirty four book series here. So they start out a little more based in just sort of uh, spaceship and sword and sorcery, you know, kind of a John Carter vibe to them. Okay, and then they increasingly get more into the author's uh, quote unquote sexual philosophy. Oh boy! Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm sure that's highly interesting. Now another great example that also has the Mystery Science Theater three thousand uh, tie in is uh, my favorite Gamera movie, uh, Gamera versus uh, Guron, uh, which features a counter-Earth named Terra, and it's home to a humanoid species on the verge of extinction due to nonstop Gaos attacks, Gaos being the sort of winged shark creature that Gamera fights a lot. With the sort of radioactive bats that that emit rays. Yeah, so this planet has just been devastated by this because I guess they don't have a Gamera. but they do have one lone planetary guardian, and it's the blade-headed uh, Giron, uh, which if, if you've ever seen a kaiju uh, whose head looks like just a giant blade and he's fighting Gamera, uh-huh. that's him. Now, as with many of the versus things here, is it actually in the end of the movie Gamera versus Giron or do they team up? Oh, no. They, Giron is, is a total villain. So oh, okay. it's just a, a long, gooey fight between the two. Yeah. What's the Godzilla movie where uh, aliens kidnap Godzilla to bring him back to their home planet to fight a monster that's attacking them? Ooh, I don't remember that one. Uh, I, I'm 
It sounds like it probably exists, though. Is that Godzilla versus Monster Zero? Maybe so. I just looked it up. Yes, I think that is it. I don't oh, think okay. that took place on a counter-Earth, though. I think it's just another planet. Okay. Uh, we'll see. Some other quick examples of um, of counter-Earths in fiction. Uh, uh, Britt Marling's Another Earth is a film that uh, apparently uh, explores this. I haven't seen it, but I love uh, her work on the OA, the Netflix sci-fi series. No, I haven't seen it. It's good. Uh, Lars von Trier's uh, Melancholia is another film. Uh, another one I have not seen, which also uh, features a counter-Earth in some fashion. Uh, but I don't, I don't really watch films by that director, so... Uh, <laughs> I can't speak to it. And then, of course, Counter-Earths pop up in various other sci-fi properties of note. Many a good deal better than what we've mentioned here. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but hey, this is where you come in, the listener. If you have a favorite Counter-Earth or Counter-Earth treatment from science fiction, let us know. Uh, I would love to hear from it. I always enjoy hearing, uh, especially from those of you who are like, really steeped in like 70s and 80s sci-fi uh-huh. uh, novels. You know, you can write in and, uh, and, and, you know, and educate us on what we're missing. All right, we got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more on Lost Planets. All right, we're back. What's our next destination, Joe? Oh, uh, we got to be turning in and turning down. It, it, this I want to get on a hobby horse for a second. Okay. Okay, you know that old expression that in space there is no up or down? Mm-hmm. It's very it's like in uh, the Wrath of Khan, right? You know, it's like Khan is thinking uh is not thinking 3D enough. He's not thinking about space the right way. Uh and so it's tactically advantageous to recognize when you're flying around in space there's no real top or bottom. You can orient in any direction. And in a sense that is true. If we go into orbit around the Antikathon, say, there's no reason to assume that the north pole of Gore is up and the south pole of Gore is down or vice versa. Right. And then, as we've discussed before on the show, you have more of an an up and down feel in Star Trek because it's basically a world of ships, a world of seagoing vessels translated into a space scenario. And then you have more recent models of especially visual science fiction, such as uh, the television series The Expanse, which – which demonstrates a more three-dimensional realm of uh, of uh, you know, cosmic military engagement. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so, so it is true that out here in space, there's no ground down beneath our feet. But in another sense, I think that's really underselling how far down down goes. Mm-hmm. Because down means toward a center of gravity. That's how we use it to mean, you know, down on Earth. And the solar system actually does have a bottom. And it's about 15 million degrees Celsius. It's the core of the sun, the star eye whose gaze you cannot hold without going blind. That's all the way down in the solar system. So you're talking about just being – if you were pulled down the gravity well, as it's called. Yes. Like that's the bottom, yeah. Straight down into the pit, straight into the open mouth of Aten. And so I like thinking about it that way, thinking about that as you get closer to the sun, you're actually going down into the pit. You're almost mm. in a way going into the underworld. Ah. And so for literally thousands of years – we mentioned this earlier in the episode – but since no later than the Babylonian astronomers of the second millennium BCE, humans have known about the first six planets. You can see them with the naked eye – Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn – They're bright points of light passing and regressing across the night sky. You don't need a telescope sometimes. We've watched them. We've charted their movement. And when Newton came along, there was a revolution because we discovered the laws that govern the way they move. And crucially, you know, Newton came up with laws of motion that allowed us to see that the same physical laws that controlled the movements of the planets also controlled the movement of regular objects here on Earth. It was things like gravity and momentum. But now that we're out of the realm of, say, the ancient Greeks who were reasoning on the basis of maybe something like Pythagorean symmetry or something like that, now we've got real scientific tools under our belt that actually help us learn what things are out there and they are – good at producing accurate results, could we use those tools to see if there's something else out there that we weren't seeing? And specifically, could we peer deep down into the well, all the way down into the well of the sun to see if there's something in that direction we're not seeing? So I want to turn to uh, my man, uh, Urbain. You know, it's spelled Urbain. That is not the the French way. I think it's Urbain, Urbain Jean-Joseph Leverrier. Okay. uh, A French astronomer who lived 1811 to 1877. 
And in 1837, uh, Leverrier was appointed to a position at the Polytechnic School in Paris where he began a long study of the planet Mercury, which is, of course, the innermost planet in the solar system that we know about now. It's the closest to the sun. And he was doing things like creating tables of observation of the planet's orbit. And if that sounds like boring work, you should know that there's a wrinkle here. There's actually a mystery involved in Mercury's orbit. See, Mercury's orbit is not what it should have been given the planet's momentum and the gravitational influences on it that we knew about. There's this phenomenon known as the precession of the perihelion of Mercury. Real quick point, a perihelion is the point of least distance from the sun during an object's um, orbit. Right. Yes, it's the point when it comes closest. So essentially, the the precession of the perihelion of Mercury means that every year on Mercury, every time Mercury goes around the sun, its orbit sort of shifts forward. So if you imagine getting up on the north pole of the sun and of Mercury and looking down at the solar plane, um, you're looking down at Mercury's path with a time lapse tracing its movement across the years. It would not repeat the same path every year, but instead it would sort of shift forward a bit with every trip around the sun, drawing more kind of a daisy petal or spirograph-type pattern. And the question is, what caused this? So fortunately, the astronomers of the 19th century were armed with that great investigative tool in the history of science, the physics of Isaac Newton. And the physics of Isaac Newton was extremely good at predicting the movements of a planet by knowing its inertia, the uniform motion of the planet through space, and by knowing gravity, the mutual attraction to other centers of mass that were out there. And generally, Newton's laws had proved really accurate, astonishingly good, actually, at predicting planetary motion. And if you took into account Count all the relevant influences, the physical influences we knew about, you could just predict where the planets would go except Mercury. And so Newton's laws accounted for almost all of the observed uh, precession of the, the orbit of Mercury, but not quite all. There's still just a bit of steady change in the planet's orbit that stubbornly remained unexplained, making the orbit of Mercury this stubborn and mysterious problem in Leverrier's time. But in 1845, Leverrier... He's working on a different problem. He changes his focus briefly to focus on the curious case of another planet in the solar system. See, uh, I mentioned earlier that we'd known about the first six planets in the solar system since ancient times. But in the 19th century, astronomers were still dealing with a relatively recent addition. And think about how weird this is like to at a time for the first time in thousands of years mm-hmm. that we knew about another planet. And that planet was – How do we say this planet's name on the podcast, Robert? Do we just say Uranus? Well, Uranus is fun. Is is more fun? Uh, Simply, Uh, it's more humorous. Um, I often, I often say Uranus, though. That almost sounds like a a Uranist. Like Uranist, it's a professional urinator. In many respects, it's an unfortunately named planet. Yeah. It maybe could have been worse. I don't know if this would be worse or not. So it was discovered in 1781, Uranus, Uranus, sorry. That was the first time it was seen by a human. And it was by the German-born British astronomer William Herschel who uh, found the planet during a survey of the stars. And he wanted to call it not Uranus or Uranus, but Georgium Cetus, or the Star of George, after King George III of England. Uh, and I'm glad that name got scrapped in, in yeah. favor of a much more dignified mythological anus reference. Yeah, I, even even with the, the anus right in there, it uh, it has more of a ring to it than uh, than this uh, Georgium Cetus uh, uh, business. <laughs> well, I mean, oh, how horrible that would be to name a planet after just like a human king. Kings suck. Yes, absolutely. I mean, kings, they, they have all these other things. Let's at least leave their names off of the planets. Yeah. Stick to mythical references, please. Uh, But anyway, like Mercury, uh, Uranus was this kind of like sphere mysterious, right? Uranus also wobbled in its orbit. Its path around the sun was different from what we would predict given the gravitational influences that we knew about. So Leverrier took this mystery and he turned it into one of the great success stories in the history of any scientific theory. He conjured a planet out of the void. Hmm. And his assumptions were really simple. So he took the known laws of physics. He took Newton's laws. And he asked, you know, given these laws, what could make Uranus's orbit as irregular as we observe? 
And the answer he came up with was, well, another planet could do it. He calculated how big that other planet would have to be and where exactly it would have to be in relation to Uranus. And then he put that prediction to the test. He, he wrote down his predictions in a letter to a German astronomer named Johann G. Galle and asked him to look for this eighth planet with his instruments. And using Leverrier's predictions, Galle found the planet Neptune after only about an hour of looking for it within one degree of exactly where Leverrier had predicted. And I should also just note that an English astronomer named John C. Adams also calculated the position of the planet that would come to be known as Neptune independently around the same time. But in both cases, uh, they're essentially using the math to determine where uh, this this unknown planet would be, and then it is confirmed that there is, of course, a planet there. And the, yeah, and this is like the classic case of like when when a scientific theory works best, right? Mm-hmm. When a scientific theory tells you how things work in a way that allows you to extrapolate from what you know to what you predict you should find in the future, and then you go out and look yeah, and you find you exactly yeah, yeah, you find exactly what you predicted. So this is like a, a great win for Newton's theories, right? And the prediction was a huge success. It led to Leverrier being given all kinds of medals and honorary appointments, and he was eventually made uh, the head of the Astronomical Observatory in Paris. He had he had plucked Neptune out of space, armed with nothing but the power of Newton's laws. And so then after this, Leverrier decides to go back to his old subject. He turns his attention back to Mercury and the problem of Mercury's ah. orbit. I think everybody can see where we're going here. Right, yeah. So you can guess what the temptation might be. Leverrier had just achieved awesome fame by predicting a previously undiscovered planet. What if there was another? Hmm. So he came up with a prediction for something with mass very close to the sun inside the orbit of Mercury, maybe another asteroid belt or another planet. It would be something with mass that that could cause Mercury's orbit to wobble in the way he had measured so precisely when making his tables. And then, here's the real kicker, just like Neptune, this inner planet was also discovered. Oh, so here I want to re- uh, rely on the work of a of an author named Thomas Levinson from a book called The Hunt for Vulcan uh, from uh, Random House in 2016. And in an interview with uh, Nat Geo, Levinson describes the first sighting of the planet at the bottom of the pit, which was by an amateur French astronomer named Edmond Modeste Lescarbot on March 26, 1859. So you've got the – he's this country doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a country doctor by trade and he's got an observatory in a stone barn in his backyard. Yeah, this is, uh, is often the case when we're talking about astronomy from this area. We're getting into the – the realm of the gentleman scientist. Yes, yeah. He's sort of like he dabbles maybe. Yeah. So one day in 1859, Lescarbot took a break in between seeing patients and he went out to his telescope to observe the sun. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and Levinson says, quote, As he trains his telescope on the sun, he sees a round object on the face of the sun. He times it as it moves steadily across the sun, records the data. Then another patient arrives, so he checks out that patient, then comes back to the barn. This round dot is still crossing the sun. He tracks it continuously, taking notes on its path until it finally goes over the other edge of the sun. And so after making this observation, Lescarbo, he reads about Leverrier's prediction, and he gets all excited. And he writes a letter to Leverrier describing what he saw crossing the disk of the sun. So Leverrier had predicted this planet would be in there, and then Lescarbo saw it. And apparently Leverrier was at a New Year's Eve party when he got the letter, oh. and he just left. And he's <laughs> like, oh, boy. And he, he went out to Lescarbo's house, which uh, was a trip that Levinson said involved a train ride and a 12-mile walk. <laughs> so he, he was obviously excited. Yeah. I mean, you find one planet, you kind of get hooked on it, right? you right. got to find another. Um, so Leverrier confirmed the observation, and this inner planet got a name. It came to be known as Vulcan. That's a good name because Vulcan in, in, uh, in the mythological sense is, is close to the forge. Yes, he's the forge god. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He's the Hephaestus type figure. He's down there with the fires beating the steel. And uh, th- this triggered a period of what Levinson called a Vulcan mania. <laughs> so suddenly astronomers all over the world are trying to find Vulcan and quite a few reported finding it. Like during an eclipse in 1878, uh, Levinson tells the story that Thomas Edison happened to be in the, the path of totality for a, for a solar eclipse 
eclipse in Wyoming, and he was there to try out an infrared radiation sensor he had created, which actually did not work in the end. Uh, but he, So he's out there for the eclipse, and he ends up coming across a pair of Vulcan hunters who were using the eclipse to try to spot the planet, because obviously, if you think about this, it's hard to see a planet that's close to the sun under normal circumstances. Right. But if you wait for a solar eclipse and the moon blocks out the, the light of the sun, suddenly you can look up there and see, okay, is there anything there? The two Vulcan hunters here in the story were Simon Newcomb and James Craig Watson. Uh, and the, the report goes that Newcomb could not find the planet. He looked for Vulcan during the eclipse. He didn't see anything. But Watson said he saw it. He said a star was near the sun, which had never been documented before. It was not on any of his charts, and it had to be the planet Vulcan. In an article for Nautilus, Levinson writes about Watson's sighting, quote, Watson saw very close to the limb of the sun a ruddy star, just where Vulcan ought to have been. So the discovery of Vulcan was reported in the New York Times, in papers around the world. It was huge and exciting news. And there were even cases where like doubters and skeptics about Vulcan were sort of poo-pooed and made fun of. Mm -hmm. But if you know your solar system now, you might be wondering, okay, so what happened? Yeah, yeah, we didn't memorize that one in school. Right. So, yeah, what happened to Vulcan and Vulcan mania? Well, of course, many others simply failed to find the planet. Other people looked for it and never saw what the people who found it said they saw. But what really killed it was a change in the theoretical framework that had predicted it. That change was what was brought about with Einstein and the theory of general relativity. So when Einstein devised his theory, one of the key elements is that space and time may have their geometry altered by large amounts of mass and energy, and that an object traveling close to a massive object like a star would be effective by these deformations of space-time. And what Einstein found here was that his theory, when he did the math, almost perfectly predicted the precession of the perihelion of Mercury without invoking any elusive hidden planets. Reportedly, you know, when Einstein made these calculations and discovered that his theory had finally explained the leftover bits of Mercury's wobble, he was so excited that he felt heart palpitations and couldn't work for days because here's this lingering mystery in astronomy. It had led people to hypothesize phantom planets that mm -hmm. weren't actually there. And finally, just by re-envisioning exactly how gravity worked and what the shape of space-time was, he had explained it. Now, with this new theory, it matched all of the observations from the past. Like, he, this is like a Scooby-Doo mystery. Like, the ghost is no longer required. Right. Because he, he has pulled the mask off of the villain and exposed it. Yeah. Einstein, he made a name for himself by killing a planet. <laughs> Vulcan was dead. But I like to think about, uh, and Levinson points out some stuff about this too, the interesting fact that in a way, Leverrier was sort of doing everything right, right? You know, he was like, as a scientist, he was like, okay, well, I've got a theory that I think works right. You know, you've got uh, Newtonian mechanics. They, they have made correct predictions before. So I'll use them to make a prediction again in, the, in much the manner of uh, predictions that have worked out in the past. And then you go to the tests and say, okay, does anybody empirically confirm what I predicted? And people did. Yeah, I mean, this. I mean, it, getting it wrong too is part of the process here. Yeah, uh, you form the best um, hypothesis based on the materials you have to work with, and then eventually, you know, it's going to be proven, disproven, or uh, or or somewhere in between, uh, tweaked to uh, account for new information about the world. I mean, I wonder what was going on in the case of the people who said that they saw Vulcan. Like, were they? I mean, was it just the case that these were instances where people did see something and they were just confused about what it was? Or were they cases where people were so excited to, you know, want to see what they were expecting to see that, that it, you know, maybe they wouldn't have seen something otherwise, but they just had their, their biases going? Oh, I think, I think it was all of those. I mean, we've talked about uh, on the show before uh, the uh, enthusiasm around uh, uh, spying the canals of Mars. Right, yeah. You know, um, and and certainly that similar excitement involved there. But in this case, we're dealing with something that is perhaps even less obvious uh, to untrained eyes, perhaps just a little easier to fool yourself on if you have just, just the right amount of enthusiasm as you're gazing up at, at, at an eclipse, like which, which even with appropriate gear is, is an overwhelming situation. Yeah, it's emotionally arousing. Yeah. yeah. You might say just a generally extreme proposition. Yes, and, and ill-advised. <laughs> just in case we're, we're not clear here, 
do not listen to the show and go out and stare at the sun looking for phantom planets. Right. Though I would advise you do visit a solar observatory. Absolutely. Yes. Should we take a break and then explore one last lost daughter of Aten? Let's do it. All right, we're back. So we've cast Vulcan aside. Vulcan, Vulcan's out. So, it's dead. So let's go through the planets. We have. Wait a minute. What about Antikathon? Oh, it's dead too. It's dead too. Man. Central fire also gone. So we have Mercury. Okay. Venus, Earth, Mars, and then of and course Phaeton. Jupiter. What? Oh, oh, okay. We'll see. Did you say Phaeton? I said Phaeton. What is Phaeton? All right. Uh, yep. This is the this this is uh, our next destination in the podcast, named for the son of Helios in Greek myth. And this was the this was a, a, for a, a brief period a hypothetical planet between Mars and Jupiter. Hmm. Now I know that there is something between Mars and Jupiter. Well, yeah. So we have uh, the, the rubble of an asteroid belt between Mars and the gas giant. So the hypothesis here, just to get it out of the way right from the start, is that the asteroid belt used to be a planet, uh, which we are going to call Phaeton. Okay. Yes. So it's like in Star Wars after the planet Alderaan gets blown up by the Death Star. Exactly. And they arrive in the Millennium Falcon and what's there? A bunch of like rocks floating around in space. That's sort of like the asteroid belt after the planet Phaeton has been destroyed. Right. So the, the basic idea here is, yeah, Phaeton, the planet, is gone and all we have is this rubble. Now, uh, why name it Phaeton? This is pretty fun, too. Uh, that's because um, uh, in mythology, um, uh, Phaeton borrows uh, his dad's sun chariot. He be- borrows the chariot of Helios. And I just guess, guess just goes on a wild ride on this thing. It just totally wipes out. Right. Uh, so there are a number of different paintings of him falling off the chariot of the sun, crashing uh-huh. the chariot of the sun. Um there's a, there's one particular uh, fresco, a 1558 fresco. Um, this was done in 1558. This is not an internet humor thing. No, no. But it's like yeah, it's like a fresco, and you know, you're looking up, and there is a Phaeton uh, driving the chariot, and he is, as you said, you might say, straight porky pigging it. He's just uh, he's he's wearing robes and all, uh, at least on his torso, mm-hmm. and it's just uh, naked butt and genitals uh, hanging out. This is absolutely the most prominent scrotum I have ever seen <laughs> in a Renaissance painting. So I don't know. Maybe he wrecked the chariot because he was wearing no pants. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe this is part of the accident. Like he's he's wiping out so bad that his pants are just immediately vaporized. <laughs> well, no. I think what we need to uh, what we must accept is that actually this painting by Domenico Riccio. I don't know if you said the name. That, oh no, I did not. That's the painter here. This painting here is anatomically correct. This is what a chariot wreck would look like for a god wearing robes. We just normally are coddled by painters who must represent the gods in a tasteful pose. This is like the cinema verite of Renaissance painting of of classical gods. So I highly recommend looking it up if you get a chance. Um, Maybe I'll include a link on the landing page, Uh, though it will almost certainly not be the, the, the main art for the episode. So, so anyway, I, I know what everyone's thinking. I'm sorry, okay, I've got it. There's this idea that well, what's the asteroid belt doing there? Okay, maybe it used to be a planet. But the, the way we actually get to the formation of this Phaeton hypothesis is a lot more interesting than that. And it comes down again to, uh, to the math, to a mathematical model. And then, uh, and then someone's saying, well, what, what should go here? What would, what would make this model work? What would fill in the missing blank? Well, a planet, of course. So you're saying there's a mathematical uh, prediction or mathematical theory that otherwise holds true, that, that predicted other things accurately and would have predicted a planet where the asteroid belt is. Right. And it, ha- it all has to do with uh, what's known as uh, the Titius-Bode law. This is a hypothesis of planetary sequence named for Johann Daniel Titius and Johann uh, Ellert Bode. The two Johans. Yes, Johann and Johann. And um, this was the, now in the uh, yeah, this was proposed by German astronomer Tithus in 1766 and popularized by Bode in 1772. And it, and to explain what all this is about, let's consider the sequence of planets again. This time, you know, what we know. Okay. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Okay. Now consider this sequence of numbers. Okay. 0 3 6 12, 24. Each number after three is twice the previous number. Okay. So 
zero, and then three, and then we go to six, then to 12, then 24. Makes sense. Okay. Add four to each of these numbers and then divide them by 10. Okay. And the result is as follows. 0 0.4, 0.7, 1.0, 1.6, 2.8, 5.2, 10.0. Okay. Okay. Six of these numbers closely approximate the distances of our planets from the sun in astronomical units or AUs. Okay. To refresh, one AU is the rough distance between the Earth and the sun. Okay. So 0.4 AUs, Mercury, 0.7 Venus, 1 Earth, naturally, 1.6 Mars, 2.8. No, not a planet. Do a bunch there. of question marks. Right. 5.2 is Jupiter and 10 is Saturn. So what's going on with 2.8? You're saying otherwise the distance of the planets from the sun pretty closely follow this sequence of numbers in an orderly way. Right, of the, the, the planets known to exist at the time. And, and so um, Bode especially, he said he, – he, there's a quote from him. He says, can one believe that the founder of the universe had left this space empty? Right. Why would he mess with us like that? Right. I mean, but, but I mean, without invoking the Almighty though, coming back to just the pure math, you can see where they, they would say, well, look, this, this, this mathematical sequence lines up otherwise perfectly. Uh, with the with the distances of the planet, so what's going on here? Yeah, you would have to think uh, if there if there were never a planet there, th it's just a really odd coincidence that all the other planets line up so well. Right. Uh, the other important fact uh, here is that at this time, uh, the asteroid belt was not known, mm -hmm. so it was just a blank spot. They weren't even saying, "Oh, well, there should be a planet here. There's an asteroid belt." No, there just appeared to be nothing. Now, I do wonder if, even though they didn't know about the asteroid belt, would they know about some of the largest of the asteroids? Well, in 1801, they they began to because that's when we discovered the asteroid series, ah, and our okay. understanding of the asteroid belt began. And at first, series alone seemed to be the answer. Like, surely this was the planet. Only Ceres is not a true planet. It's a, a minor planet or dwarf planet, depending on how you want to classify it. It's the 33rd largest known body in the solar system. And uh, the, the asteroid belt itself contains various smaller minor planets and irregularly shaped bodies. The total mass of these rocks, if you were to try and assemble them all into a planet, into a phaeton, if you will, mm -hmm. would be about 4% of the Earth's moon. And, uh, and so, you know, that's not quite a planet's worth. Uh, and then the, the, the belt it's, uh, itself, we, we, we know now that it, was, it formed in the solar nebula and would become, uh, that would become the solar system. But gravitational, gravitational uh, uh, perturbations from Jupiter prevented the lumps from accreting into a planet. There was just too much orbital energy. Hmm. But the, the idea here that they had was that, okay, we're discovering all these pieces. Maybe they are pieces of... Of, of something else, something that was there before. So Phaeton would have been that planet and, uh, and it would have at some point been destroyed, becoming the asteroid belt. And we got to this point because in 1802, German astronomer Heinrich Wilhelm Mathaus Olbers proposed that these might be the remains of a planet. And then linguist Johann uh, Gottlieb Radloff proposed the name Phaeton. Okay. I mean, really, he had the easy part. He just right. came along and said, hey, call it Phaeton. Maybe he was just a big fan of that painting. Yeah, maybe so. And all of this was in line with what uh, would be known as disruption theory, uh, which was the idea that there was some former planet here that was destroyed by Jupiter's gravity or a space collision or some manner of internal turmoil or the effects of some other hypothetical, uh, hypothetical local cosmic body. Uh-huh. But we know now that no such planet ever existed. Or at least the evidence is against it. Right. right? The evidence is against it. There, was, there, there doesn't seem to have ever been something there to explode. Uh -huh. Plus, uh, the, the, the Titius-Bode law is now just considered a mathematical curiosity. And not only because Phaeton didn't work out. Uh, it, it is interesting that the sequence holds true uh, for Uranus, okay. which was discovered later in 1781. Um, Wait, are you are you abandoning ground on Uranus again? <laughs> um, well, no, I could just. I mean, we're already talking about um, uh, Phaeton um, Porky Pigging it, so I guess we can we can use Uranus. <laughs> uh, the sequence holds true for Uranus as well, uh, discovered in 1781 uh, at uh, 19 AUs. But here's the thing: Neptune and then Pluto break the sequence. Okay. So the sequence, the, the the law does not hold up. Uh, to the uh, discovery of additional bodies in our solar system. Okay.
So our apologies to the two Johans. <laughs> but again, they were doing exactly what one should do. They were looking. They were looking at the at the data. They were they were looking at the observations, and they were trying to figure out what was going on. Why Why is the observable solar system not matching up with this mathematical pattern that we have seen uh, elsewhere? And then when they you begin to discover something in the exact place where something should be to meet this sequence, I mean, that's compelling. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just a reminder that, of course, uh, you know, even when you're sort of when you're sort of like doing science right, like you're not out there just proposing ancient aliens because it feels good or something. Right. Like you, you know, you've got a theory that has a track record of of correctly uh, uh, predicting some things in the past. So you're you're trying to extrapolate to the future. That that's in a way how science usually works when it works correctly. But it can still lead you astray. And you've always got to you've always just got to return to the well of empirical observation and keep trying to figure things out and refining. Yeah, you don't and you. You don't want to be too married to the idea that you're going to discover a planet, right. because then that can skew your uh, uh, your observations and uh, and just the the uh, the overall integrity of what you're trying to do. There's nothing like the rush of discovering a planet. You you can tell people they were just like chomping for it. Like if if for instance, if you were seeking to discover a counter Earth because you believe that to be Hades, you believed it to be uh, the uh, the nether realm, mm-hmm. and that discovering it would then prove something, some religious model that was important to you. Um, you know, th- that that would be an example of, uh, of, of overzealous exploration. Like you're clearly, you're, um, uh, th- you know, the, the, uh, the exploration is out of whack at that point. That would make for a pretty good sci-fi story. I'm going to propose a principle known as, uh, let's call it uh, Phaeton's Razor, uh, <laughs> where it is you do not needlessly multiply gores. Yes, if, you're, if your model of uh, the solar system can work without the inclusion of a phantom planet, uh, then, then, then that's the direction you should go in. But however, as we're going to discuss in a future episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, that's not quite it for phantom planets in our own solar system. Uh, there, there still remain... Uh, uh, you know, at least uh, one or two that are still talked about. Oh, yes. Shall we return? Yes, we should. But we'll leave those phantom planets for next time. Okay. All right. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out our homepage, it is stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes and uh, also a number of links. You'll find links to our various social media accounts. You'll find uh, uh, links to our, our our little merchandise store where you can buy T-shirts and uh, – uh, logos to stick on your laptops and street signs and what have you. Uh, it's it's all there. And if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you a dime, the best thing you can do is rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you have the power to do so. And if you're not subscribed, make sure you're subscribed. Likewise, make sure that you have subscribed and that you've rated our show Invention, which comes out every Monday. It's a, a, a continual exploration of human techno history, one invention at a time. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harris. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.